Welcome everyone to the Bold Speak Podcast. I'm Anthony Creedon. Happy you can join us as we continue this study, No Other Gospel, a study of the book of Galatians. Today we're going to enter into lesson two. Uh, This is going to cover Galatians chapter two, so we can see a little bit more about what Paul is discussing in regard to the nature of the gospel. But before we get too far, let's take a step backward and remind ourselves of where we are. So far, we've seen Paul address a group of people known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers are those who believe that in order to be Christian, you must first be Jewish. Uh, Paul believes that this idea is getting in the way of the purity of the gospel. That is to say, that the gospel is the confession that we are saved and redeemed by simple faith in Jesus Christ. That by believing in him, by trusting and leaning on his promise, we will receive eternal life. Now, the Judaizers have taken up a very interesting tactic in order to kind of complicate or defeat Paul's message. They've decided that the way they can support their own message is to discredit Paul's message and do that by discrediting Paul himself. It appears that Paul is aware of this as he writes the letter to the Galatian churches, because in the very beginning of the Galatian letter, he describes his history, his narrative that brought him to this point that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. We took a look at Paul's validation for his message on the basis of Christ's call for him to enter into his apostolic ministry. We took a step back and looked at Acts chapter 9 as we saw this conversion experience and how the message of the gospel that Paul is proclaiming is Christ's message and not Paul's. But Paul is going to now up the ante. He's going to make his case even more strong by conveying to us this uh, time when he met with the apostles in Jerusalem and how that interaction validates his message and proclamation of the gospel. So in order to do that, we're going to jump into the book of Galatians, chapter 2, beginning verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they may bring us into slavery, To them, we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. 
Okay, so let's jump into our study of Galatians 2. We're going to be looking through the study guide. Uh, we're on page 8, if you're following along. Uh, if you haven't yet purchased the study guide, you can go ahead and do that on our website, www.theboldspeak.com. Uh, go to the shop there, and you can make the purchase, and uh, just kind of track along with us as we go through the lessons and the questions. All right, so we're in lesson 2, question 1, page 8 of the study guide, and it says this. What was Paul looking for in verse 2? It seems that Paul desired some kind of validation of his message from the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. See, since he was primarily ministering to the Gentiles, as Peter, also known here as Cephas, was ministering to the Jews, Paul desired to make sure that the message that he was presenting was a unified message. See, Paul wanted to make sure that the left hand knew what the right hand was doing and vice versa. What Paul wanted to avoid was one group of Christian leadership saying one thing and the other group saying something that's completely contradictory. So it makes sense that Paul would seek out the other apostles in Jerusalem to just do a little bit of a check and balance. Here's what I'm proclaiming to the Gentiles. Is that the same thing that you're proclaiming to the Jews? All right, so it's in, in this vein and this idea that Paul approaches them and, and kind of engages with them to make sure that his message and, and the way that he's gone about this isn't, as he says, in vain. All right, so let's get to question two. Why would Paul be concerned about this? Well, you have to understand that because you have men claiming to be Christian leaders in Galatia who are proclaiming a message that's contrary to the gospel that, that Paul was given by Christ himself, what Paul is establishing here is that the gospel given by the Judaizers did not come from Jerusalem leadership. That is to say that Cephas, Peter, James, and John didn't agree with the message of the Judaizers. Rather, their message comes from a, a group of men who have just kind of weaseled their way into the church in Jerusalem in order to promote their own ideas about how the gospel should work. And this is the point that Paul is trying to make. He didn't need to validate himself as an apostle. But because his credibility has been challenged, he wants to present to the Galatian church this simple idea. Of the two, Paul and the Judaizers, which one of those first received a message directly from Christ, and second, actually validated this message with the church in Jerusalem and got their approval? See, Paul wins on both accounts, and this only further validates his message. All right, so let's see his kind of major point here as we get to question three. What is the significance of Titus, a Greek Gentile, not being forced to be circumcised? Ah, see here, the significance is what it proves. See, if the message of the circumcision were, were coming from leadership in Jerusalem, then Titus would have been required to have been circumcised. But since he wasn't, it proves that the Judaizers did not have the support of Jerusalem, nor do they have the support of Paul. The message of the Judaizers was outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one who received revelation from Christ himself carried this same false gospel. See, Titus here is a test case. If, in fact, the message of the Judaizers was true, that you had to become Jewish before you became Christian, then why was Titus commissioned to be a proclaimer of the gospel without needing to be circumcised? If the church in Jerusalem genuinely taught and believed the same as the Judaizers, Titus would have been treated very differently. But rather, 
Titus was able to remain uncircumcised and still commissioned as a valid proclaimer of the gospel message. Alright, question four. What does Paul mean when he says that the Jerusalem leadership gave him the right hand of fellowship? Paul here means that the Jerusalem leadership, held in high regard by the Christians at the time, entered into partnership with Paul. That is to say, his ministry was made official as he was charged to minister specifically to the Gentiles as the men of Jerusalem would focus on the Jews. Now, the impact of this is incredibly important. For Paul to be officially sanctioned by the men of Jerusalem means that he had the full support and weight of not only Christ, but also the support of the men who walked and talked with him during his earthly ministry. The conclusion here is unmistakable. Paul is a rightful apostle in the ministry of Jesus Christ and is credible in his message in every sense. Even though the Judaizers may have attempted to discredit his message by discrediting him, his validity as an apostle has been supported on all fronts. Paul is a legitimate apostle. So everything the Judaizers are trying to do to discredit him should simply be disregarded and the message that Paul proclaimed as the true and pure gospel should be held up as exactly that, the truth of Christ's proclamation and the only gospel that we should put our trust in. All right, now that Paul's kind of established his relationship with the Jerusalem leadership and has kind of proven his unity with them, now the letter's going to take a little bit of a turn, and he's going to present one final case, one final solid argument that shows that his proclamation of the gospel is from Christ and not from men. And he's going to do that by showing that he even had some disagreements with the apostles in Jerusalem themselves. So now we're going to read Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Alright, at this point we're going to take a brief pause here and address something that's become a little bit of a controversy in regard to the identity of Cephas. The question is, is the Cephas that is mentioned here in Galatians Peter, as many translations seem to indicate? Well, there's a couple of different factors that weigh in here. Uh, first, we know that Cephas was a name that was also given to Peter. It's the Aramaic version of his name, as it's referenced in John chapter 1, verse 42, where it says, He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Alright, so Cephas is intimately tied to Peter as to say that they are the same person. 
Now, the second bit of evidence we get here in regard to the identity of this Cephas is that Cephas has thus far uh, been kind of mentioned in stride with James and John. Now, this is a very common pattern in the Gospels and the New Testament to mention Peter, James, and John. Those who went up at the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John. Those who waited as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, James, and John. So with this combination and knowing that Peter is also sometimes referred to as Cephas, it's reasonable to assume here that the Cephas that's being referred to is in fact Peter. Okay, so with that being said, let's jump into question five. What happened that made Paul so upset with Cephas, Peter? Here's the issue. Peter was eating a meal and enjoying the company of Gentiles, likely kind of Gentile converts. But when James sent some Jews over to Peter, Peter got up from the table and separated himself from the Gentiles for fear that the Judaizers, and that's the circumcision party, would be offended and start trouble. But Peter's actions weren't the worst part. Because of Peter's separation, other converted Jews followed Peter's example and separated themselves from the Gentiles as well, thus making it appear that Jews should not be in community with Gentiles. See, it wasn't just Peter's action, but what it taught the others and the temptation that it placed before them regarding the beliefs of the Judaizers. In other words, could Peter's actions be seen as a way to validate the position of the Judaizers? And Paul recognizes the problem here, and so he addresses it publicly. In front of everyone, it says, he publicly calls out Peter to say that what he did was wrong. And now see, this is a very important thing for us to think about. And this gets us to question seven. How do our wrong actions tempt others or even promote sin? It's something that I like to call temp-teaching. Temp-teaching is when we, by our actions, show others bad behavior and then by it, tempt others to act in the same way. For example, if a parent decides to no longer attend a Bible study after worship on Sunday mornings, that's a decision that they're making for themselves. But aside from their personal preferences, what is it communicating to the rest of their family? What are their kids tempted to think about regular Bible study themselves? Likely, they're tempted to think that it just isn't important. And the reason is because that's what they've been taught, not directly by the parents, but tacitly by their actions. If we expect other people to act in a way that is loving and merciful, if we expect others to act in a way that we feel is um, appropriate as a Christian, we have to be very careful to think about how it is that our actions affect other people. If we don't act lovingly, are we tempting those who are looking at Christianity to think that Christians don't act lovingly? Your actions, like Peter's, communicate ideas and, and what you do can have a tremendous effect on how others act in the same situation. In this particular situation, Peter's actions created a wrong belief that the Gentiles are not worthy of the company of the Jewish converts, that somehow those who are circumcised are better than those who aren't. But that is a very divisive lie, a lie that Paul had to publicly point out in order to maintain the unity of peace amongst the Jewish and Gentile converts. We must always 
be aware of how our actions not only affect others, but what they teach others about how they too should act. All right, that gets us to question seven. What point does this account prove to the readers of the Galatian letter regarding the teaching of the Judaizers? Well, it proves that Paul's message is in fact true and that requiring the Gentiles to live like Jews is wrong and divisive. He says to Peter that if he, a Jew, isn't even required to live according to all the Jewish customs, then why would a Gentile be forced to do so? Essentially, he asks, why as leadership would you require the Gentiles to do something that you don't even do? This point's pretty well made. If the leadership of the Jerusalem church recognizes this action to be wrong, and if Paul, before the Jews in Jerusalem, publicly called out the Jerusalem leadership for their giving the illusion that Gentiles should act like Jews, then the message of the Judaizers is clearly not supported by the Jerusalem leadership and is therefore a false message and a wrong gospel. Bottom line, the Judaizers are promoting an erroneous gospel that unnecessarily burdens the consciences of Gentiles by requiring them to be circumcised to be saved. And to support that claim, they're attempting to discredit Paul's apostleship and claim that Jerusalem is behind them? Not at all. None of that is true. Uh, Paul and Jerusalem are in step with each other. They have a solid confession of the truth of the gospel, that is to say that the gospel is a belief, a faith, and trust in the promise of Christ for salvation. The ones who need to be discredited here are the Judaizers. So what does this mean for us? Well, it has a huge impact on how we see ourselves living out the life of the gospel. See, Christ's forgiveness, his mercy, his grace, his love, come with no strings attached. There's no series of requirements that you have to fulfill, no boxes that have to be checked, no rules that need to be followed in order to receive love, grace, and mercy. And as we live that out in the lives of others, our forgiveness should reflect that. Look, the truth is, is actions have consequences. When we make mistakes, when we screw up, there are results that come from that. But none of that pre prevents us from receiving mercy. None of that prevents us from being forgiven. And forgiveness in its purity as the gospel is true forgiveness. No strings attached. And let's be honest, many times that kind of hurts. In fact, one of the best descriptions of forgiveness that I've ever heard is from Tim Keller on his book, The Reason for God. In it, he speaks about forgiveness this way. He says, quote, Forgiveness means refusing to make them pay for what they did. However, to refrain from lashing out at someone when you want to do so with all your being is agony. It's a form of suffering. Not only suffer the original loss of happiness, reputation, and opportunity, but now you forgo the consolation of inflicting the same on them. You're absorbing the debt, taking the cost of it completely on yourself instead of taking it out of the other person. It hurts terribly. Many people would say it feels like a kind of death. Yes, but it is a death that leads to resurrection instead of the lifelong living death of bitterness and cynicism, end quote. 
What an incredible explanation of the gospel here. It's to say that the sin that someone does against you is forgiven as you absorb that sin upon yourself, not requiring anything of the other person. That sounds a whole lot like Jesus, and a whole lot like the way we are asked to live the gospel every day and always. That's going to do it for this first part of Lesson 2 of No Other Gospel, a study of the book of Galatians. Very glad you can be with us. Also, make sure you pick up those study guides if you want to follow along with us. Also, make sure that you uh, subscribe to the podcast. You can get alerts when new episodes are released. Uh, go ahead and like and share and let everyone know. I invite others to do this study with us as we try to see what, uh, what God's trying to say to us about the nature of the gospel itself. Now we're going to take a look at the uh, latest news, so let's get to The Wire. Wire. Over the last several weeks, there have been several shootings, the latest being the shootings in a Pittsburgh Jewish synagogue. It's in the midst of tragedies like this that it's easy to get wrapped up in the horror of these sinful acts and react with either fear or anger, or many times even both. The fear, it tempts us to shrink back from other people and imagine the worst possible scenarios and then, in turn, shut ourselves off from the world. The result is that we become more distant with each other. On the other side, the anger makes us desire revenge for these horrible acts, and so we seek someone to blame, whether that is simply the shooter himself or some kind of larger mechanism like the government or even the president. But why do we react this way? A closer look at the Bible shows us that we've been reacting to sin this way since the very beginning. Take note of the first things that Adam and Eve do after the fall. The first is they hide from each other, and then they hide from God. The second thing they do then is that they blame each other. They start pointing fingers. And so it seems that there is just something inside of us that tells us these are legitimate solutions to sin but they're not. Christ is the only solution to sin. And while we can certainly follow due process and seek to prevent such tragedies from happening again, turning away from each other or even against each other in times of tragedy only compounds the problem. It doesn't make it better. So I would encourage each of us to pursue love and support at all times, especially times like this. Take a deep breath, say a prayer, and let's work to change the world with mercy and grace rather than with fear or hatred returned for hatred. Let's be compassionate, caring, and most of all, Christ-like. That's The Wire. Well, that's going to do it for me here on the Bold Speak podcast. Very glad you could be with us. Make sure you follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at forward slash The Bold Speak. Also, connect with us on our website, www.theboldspeak.com. There you can get the latest information and study guides for all that we're doing here on Bold Speak. Until next time, everyone, I'm Anthony Creeden, and that is The Bold Speak. <laughs>